3: On this episode of News World, I want to explore the question of where are the reformers? You know, I look at Baltimore, extraordinarily bad schools, very high level of violence, whole neighborhoods that have no jobs, and yet people are passive. There's no great reform movement. Chicago, a weekend ago, 100 people shot a four-month-old in the hospital recovering. The South Side of Chicago has problems with drugs, problems with bad schools, problems with no jobs. And where's the reform movement? Look at Portland. I mean, Portland has Antifa almost every single night breaking the law in substantial numbers. And yet law-abiding citizens just seem totally passive. But to me, looking at a long American tradition of cleaning things up. This is a tradition that goes back probably to the very beginning of the United States as a country. A willingness for honest citizens to come together, to take on the machine, or to take on corruption, to force dramatic change. And, you know, it's not true everywhere, it's not true all the time, but there has been a remarkably consistent pattern And so I thought I would take a handful of these and give you a taste of American history as it relates to reforms. And I think you'll understand my own sense of being perplexed because I don't understand why we don't have an entire healthy generation of honest, courageous people out here reforming systems that are clearly destructive of freedom, destructive of human beings, destructive of children. So bear with me for a few minutes And I'm going to share with you some of the great examples. This is a long way from a complete story, but it gives you a taste. I mean, one of the most amazing is the Battle of Athens, not Athens, Greece, Athens, Tennessee, in 1946. There was a powerful, powerful machine in Memphis, headed up by Edward Hall, Boss Crump, he's known as Boss Crump generally. He He appointed Paul Cantrell as the candidate for sheriff in 1936. Cantrell won the election by what became known as the vote grab of 1936. And from that point on, a system of fees was introduced in the sheriff's office, which meant the officers were paid per arrest. So if you arrested somebody, you got more money. So shady arrests were made, often without substantial evidence, which included fines for drunkenness, fee-grabbing from tourists, travelers. You know, you drove through there, chance the police are going to pull you over and get some money out of you. In the meantime, the sheriff ran for the state senate, leaving his deputy, Pat Mansfield, in charge, and everything got worse, and the local population became increasingly angry. When World War II ended, About 3,000 soldiers returned home, only to find that the corrupt local government was stronger than ever. Apart from the sheriff's office, the corrupt clique controlled by Boss Crump held the local media, schools, and pretty much all of the government institutions. During the 1946 local elections, the veterans formed a nonpartisan political option, stating their candidates, Knox-Henry a decorated veteran of the North Africa campaign, was elected by the GI party, as it was called, to run against Cantrell, who was once again running for sheriff while his former deputy, Mansfield, was holding the chair. Another veteran, Bill White, organized a militia to observe the voting process in case Cantrell and Mansfield tried to rig it again. The veteran militia adopted the name The Fighting Bunch, and pistols were handed out to around 60 men who joined it. The county election poll opened on August 1st, 1946, and had a whole series of incidents. At one of the polling places in Athens, an elderly African-American farmer called Tom Gillespie was refused permission to cast his vote by Sheriff Mansfield Patrolman C.M. Windy Wise. When Gillespie tried to run away, the deputies shot him in the back. The event sparked a few standoffs between Sheriff Mansfield's deputies and the G.I. militia. The final straw was the arrest and brutal beating of Bob Harrell, who was one of the poll watchers. Harrell protested when a girl was brought in by the deputies to cast her ballot, despite the fact that she had no poll tax receipt and was not listed in the voter registration. The girl also seemed to be underage. On hearing this, Bill White ordered his men to break into the National Guard armory to steal weapons. After looting the armory, White's fighting bunch prepared for combat. When the polls closed, all ballot boxes were transported to Athens Jail. A siege began on the county jail. Paul Cantrell, Pat Mansfield, and around 50 or more deputies were caught red-handed while counting the votes without the presence of a second party. Some deputies who were outside the jail tried to lift the siege but without success. A few of the captives within the building ran out the back door, leaving their weapons behind. White ordered that any escapees should be allowed to pass, but some deputies, together with Cantrell and Mensfield, refused to surrender. Then the militia threw Molotov cocktails at the building, but failed to create any substantial damage. At one point, an ambulance arrived. White and his men held their fire, as they expected it was to evacuate the wounded from the jail. An immediate ceasefire was in effect. To everyone's surprise, the ambulance drove off with Cantrell and Mansfield, who had slipped out while leaving their men behind. White's top priority now was to secure the ballot boxes. Rumors of reinforcements were circling among the GIs, and time was of the essence. Several dynamite sticks were thrown on the jail, each of them causing damage to the building and its surroundings. Eventually, the doors were breached, and the rest of the deputies surrendered. In front of the jail, an angry mob gathered, and several of Mansfield's men were badly beaten, including Wise, who had shot Tom Gillespie earlier that day. Riots ensued, causing material damage all over the town. The mob mainly targeted police cars and the deputies' private vehicles. In the aftermath of the riots, the votes were finally counted, and the GI Party candidate, Knox Henry, was elected sheriff of McMinn County. Now, wouldn't that be an amazing movie? And it was a true story. And it involved American veterans who came home from war and said, wait a second, I'm not going to let some crook take over my county. And they were prepared to fight for it. Another example, which became quite famous, was Buford Pusser. Buford ultimately became the figure for three different movies, Walking Tall, 1973, Walking Tall 2, 1976, and Walking Tall 3, the final chapter. 1977. He was a remarkable person and physically very, very strong, had been on the semi-professional wrestling circuit, and they went to McNary County. And in the process, he ran for constable, upset the incumbent by over 100 votes. Taking his job seriously, he made a crusade out of crushing the local illegal whiskey trade. The McNary County Sheriff, James Dickey, was in cahoots with the Moonshine Ring, which operated along the state lines of Tennessee and Mississippi. Incensed by the collusion of local authorities in supporting criminal activity, Pusser decided to run against Dickey for sheriff, choosing to run as a Republican in a staunchly Democratic county. His election was assured when Dickey died in an automobile accident. In November 64, he suffered his first assault by members of the Moonshine Ring, ambushed by assailants who stabbed him seven times and left him to die. Pusser survived and made war on the ring with a vengeance. In his first year as sheriff, he raided 42 stills, arrested 75 moonshiners. In subsequent years, he expanded his attempts to clean up the crime-ridden state line area by prosecuting prostitution rings and illegal gambling houses. On February 1, 1966, Louise Hathcock attempted to kill Pusser during an on-site investigation of a robbery complaint at the Shamrock. Hathcock fired on Pusser. Pusser returned fire and killed Hathcock. On January 2, 1967, Pusser was shot three times by an unknown gunman. August 12, 1967, Pusser's wife was killed during an assassination ambush intended for Pusser. According to Pusser, the phone rang informing him of a disturbance on New Hope Road in McNary County. Pusser responded and his wife rode along. Shortly after they passed New Hope Methodist Church, a car came alongside them and opened fire, killing Pauline Pusser and wounding Buford. Buford was shot on the left side of his jaw at least three times with a 30 caliber carbine. He spent 18 days in the hospital and needed several more surgeries to restore his appearance. Pusser named Kersey McCord Nix Jr., as the contractor of his wife's killers, although neither Nix nor anyone else was ever charged with the crime. Nix was later sentenced for the Easter Saturday 1971 murder of grocer Frank K. Corso, and later for the 1987 murder for hire of Judge Vincent Sherry and his wife. He denied being involved with the ambush of the Pussers. In 1969, the Tennessee General Assembly recognized Pusser for his accomplishments and made him an honorary sergeant-at-arms. Husserl was ineligible to run for re-election in 1970 due to term limits. He was re-elected as constable of Adamsville by a majority of voters who wrote his name on the ballot. He served as constable from 1970 to 1972. And then he signed a contract with Bing Crosby Productions in 1972 to film his life story, Walking Tall. Walking Tall became a huge box office smash leading to three movies, but sadly, Busser died in a car wreck in 1974.
0: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast
1: is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com news. That's LifeLock.com news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here.
2: <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com?
3: Now, these first two examples I've given you involve a lot more violence than most of the reformers. So let's switch gears and go to our biggest city and a man who ultimately became president, but who was a reformer his entire career, Theodore Roosevelt. Roosevelt was in a city, New York, which had been notorious for serious corruption. The Lexile Committee in 1894 investigated the New York Police Department. And in 1895, Theodore Roosevelt became the president of the New York Police Department Police Commission and adopted a series of reforms against corruption. We have to remember, with Teddy Roosevelt, nothing was halfway. Somebody once said of Roosevelt that he walked along the shore and thought every single rock or shell was a brand new thing worthy of a museum and that he wanted to be the Bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral. This was a guy of enormous energy who basically really liked to be at the center of things. To give you some sense of Roosevelt's efforts at combating corruption, let me cite Roosevelt himself. This is a quote from Theodore Roosevelt in 1897 describing his earlier efforts. Quote, In May 1895, I was made president of the newly appointed police board, whose duty it was to cut out the chief source of civic corruption in New York by cleansing the police department. The police board consisted of four members. All four of the new men were appointed by Mayor Strong, the reform mayor, who had taken office in January. With me was associated as treasurer of the board, Mr. Avery D. Andrews. He was a Democrat and I a Republican. And there were questions of national politics on which we disagreed widely. But such questions could not enter into the administration of the New York police if that administration was to be both honest and efficient. And as a matter of fact, during my two-year service, Mr. Andrews and I worked in absolute harmony on every important question of policy which arose. The prevention of blackmail and corruption, the repression of crime and violence, the safeguarding of life and property, securing honest elections, and rewarding efficient and punishing inefficient police service are not and cannot properly be made questions of party difference. In other words, such a body as the police force of New York can be wisely and properly administered only upon a nonpartisan basis, and both Mr. Andrews and myself were quite incapable of managing it any other. In administering the police force, we found, as might be expected, that there was no need of genius, nor indeed of any very unusual qualities. What was required was the exercise of the plain ordinary virtues of a rather commonplace type which all good citizens should be expected to possess. Common sense, common honesty, courage, energy, resolution, readiness to learn, and a desire to be as pleasant with everybody as was compatible with a strict performance of duty. These were the qualities most called for. We soon found that in spite of the widespread corruption which had obtained the New York Police Department, most of the men were heartily desirous of being honest. There were some who were incurably dishonest, just as there were some who had remained decent in spite of terrific temptation and pressure, but the great mass came in between. Although not possessing the stamina to war against corruption when the odds seemed well-nigh hopeless, they were nevertheless heartily glad to be decent, and they welcomed the change to a system under which they were rewarded for doing well and punished for doing ill. Our methods for restoring order and discipline were simple, and hardly less so were our methods for securing efficiency. We made frequent personal inspections, especially at night, going anywhere at any time. In this way, we soon got an idea of whom among our upper subordinates we could trust and whom we could not. We then proceeded to punish those who were guilty of shortcomings and to reward those who did well refusing to pay any heed whatever to anything except the man's own character and record. A very few promotions and dismissals sufficed to show our subordinates that at last they were dealing with superiors who meant what they said, and that the days of political pull were over while we had the power. The effect was immediate. The decent men took heart, and those who were not decent feared longer to offend. The morale of the entire force improved steadily. A similar course was followed in reference to the relations between the police and citizens generally. There had formerly been much complaint of the brutal treatment by police of innocent citizens. This was stopped peremptorily by the obvious expedient of dismissing from the force the first two or three men who were found guilty of brutality. On the other hand, we made the force understand that in the event of any emergency requiring them to use the weapons against either a mob or an individual criminal, the police board backed them up without reservation. Our sympathy was for the friends and not the foes of order. If a mob threatened violence, we were glad to have the mob hurt. If a criminal showed fight, we expected the officer to use any weapon that was requisite to overcome him on the instant, and even, if it became needful, to take life. All that the board required was to be convinced that the necessity really existed. We did not possess a particle of that maudlin sympathy for the criminal, disorderly, and lawless classes, which is such a particularly unhealthy sign of social development, and we were determined that the improvement in the fighting efficiency of the police should keep pace with the improvement of their moral tone. Let me say that that's Theodore Roosevelt telling you in detail And it reminded me that if you want to look at a great example of dramatic urban reform in New York City, there is nothing better than to look at the job that was done by Rudy Giuliani starting in 1993. Giuliani's book, Leadership, is remarkable and is a great example of how a leader can profoundly change a city literally almost overnight. In addition Giuliani brilliantly hired probably the greatest police chief in the 20th century, Bill Bratton, who, by the way, also wrote a book called Turnaround. And the two books, if you put them together Leadership by Giuliani, What the Politician Does, and Turnaround by Bratton, What the Professional Police Officer Does, it makes you wonder how can these other cities be so stupid? I mean, here it is it's a formula. And we know Bratton works because Bratton's techniques worked in Boston. His techniques worked in New York. His techniques worked in Los Angeles. I personally went out and visited with him in Los Angeles and watched how it operated. He just wrote a new book, by the way, which is a memoir of his career. And we're going to have all of those books available on the show page. But again, Teddy's talking about the 1890s. Here we are 100 years later, and New York once again has decayed. Crime has gotten terrible. And along comes Giuliani and Bratton. And they literally, within two months, had begun to change the whole tone of the city and had brought about a peaceful city. And ultimately, over time, with policies which were also, by the way, followed by Bloomberg, reduced the murder rate by 85%. Now, you look at a place like Chicago, and you just think to yourself, you know, what is it they can't get? And the answer is, frankly, they don't want to get it. The Chicago power structure prefers to be the city it is, even at the cost to normal everyday people of being killed. But let me go back to Teddy for a second. In his autobiography, Teddy Roosevelt talked about his time as police commissioner. He says, quote, While police commissioner, we punished any brutality by the police with such immediate severity that all cases of brutality practically came to an end. No decent citizen, had anything to fear from the police during the two years of my service. But we consistently encouraged the police to prove that the violent criminal who endeavored to molest them or to resist arrest or to interfere with them in the discharge of their duty was himself in grave jeopardy. And we had every gang broken up and the members punished with whatever severity was necessary. Of course, when possible, the officer merely crippled the criminal who was violent, close, close. That was Teddy Roosevelt's idea of being sentimental. We're not going to kill you. We're just going to cripple you. Now, this was an era when people realized that corruption was all over the place. And if you really want to get a feel for it, one of the great productive reform periods in American history, you can read The Shame of the Cities, written by Lincoln Steffens, published in 1904. It's a remarkable series of essays on corruption. In the case of Steffens, he looks at St. Louis, Minneapolis, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, Chicago, and New York. I think you'd find that that period was one of dramatic effort to reform the cities.
1: That's ChumbaCasino.com.
0: No purchase necessary. VTW. Void are prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow
2: The 7 right now.
3: At the statewide level, there were other kind of reformers, and they faced brutal, tough fights. Robert La Follette took on the railroads in Wisconsin. The railroads kept beating him. And so he kept coming back and running. And every time they beat him, he'd become more radical, more reformist, more anti-corruption. He took on the Republican Party and described, quote, corrupt, graft-ridden system of bosses and special privilege, said that in his autobiography. He ran in eighteen ninety-six and lost. In eighteen ninety seven, he bought a country weekly, then published at Madison. According to his autobiography, as we now had a medium through which to maintain from week to week a campaign of education, the time seemed at hand to propose a constructive program. And let me emphasize this line of La Follette, a campaign of education. I would say to everybody who wants to reestablish a safe, prosperous, healthy America, what well, we need more than politics as usual, more than 30-second commercials, more than the usual garbage, we need a campaign of education. It's a great line. And by the way, it's also what the Jacksonians did in the 1820s, reaching out to the country, not just to talk in purely partisan baloney, but to actually teach people, to give them things, to let them know about what's going on. As La Follette's paper was educating people, their circulation went up because it was kind of fascinating. The bosses got so alarmed that they wanted to have the post office deny the paper second-class mail privilege sounds a little bit like Twitter or Facebook or Google or all the efforts to block Americans from talking to themselves despite the oligarchs. Inspectors from Washington actually took possession of LaFollette's books and investigated the matter. However, in the end, the post office backed down. He ran for governor again in 1898, but he was beaten again. In 1900, he ran for governor again and won the Republican nomination he actually won the general election with almost 60% of the vote. 48 hours after he took office, quote, the newspapers on the morning of January 9th contained the startling announcement that the stalwart Republicans, as the machine element of the party now for the first time called themselves, were in control of the Senate and that they proposed to fight the administration measures. This was the first animation we had that the old leaders were secretly planning to defeat the legislation pledged in the platform. It was a great shock to us. I found it hard to believe that men elected upon issues so clearly presented would have the hardihood to turn about so quickly. From that point on, you had a war in Wisconsin between La Follette and the old power structure, and it was just amazing. And La Follette just kept going back to the public, and he kept winning. Railroads in many ways played the role that Twitter and Facebook, Apple and Google are playing right now. And the result is that La Follette just took him on, did an immense amount of research, took his research, presented it to Congress, and members of Congress protested and threatened, but they couldn't ignore the facts. And so ultimately, the whole base of what became the Progressive Movement was basically a war between La Follette losing several times, coming back winning, and the railroads who thought that money and lobbyists and bribery could overcome popular will. In parallel, while La Follette was doing that in Wisconsin, he was setting the stage for Hiram Johnson to come along in California. Johnson was the 23rd governor of California from 1911 to 1970. He was part of the Lincoln-Roosevelt League, whose platform opposed the Southern Pacific Railroad. And it's exactly the same kind of model. The railroad was an oligarchy, very powerful and extraordinary with rampant corruption. One of the things that Johnson did was he got in an automobile and he went out and visited all the small towns in California that the railroads had refused to serve. So everywhere where you couldn't get to a railroad, you could get to see Hiram Johnson in a car— And as a result, he just kept building momentum. If you go read his inaugural address, January 3rd, 1911, Hiram Johnson took on the Southern Pacific Company's corruption and the way in which they operated and just went straight at him. I mean, this was an all-out war over pure power. And in the end, Hiram Johnson won. And in the process, created much of the referendum model that we now associate with California. One or two other examples. On the other coast, Tammany Hall was famous as a machine. And in fact, I always recommend to people a wonderful small book called Plunkett of Tammany Hall. Plunkett had been a member of the Tammany machine. And late in his career, he talked to a reporter as somebody who thought it was a good deal. He said, look, you know, you're poor. It's winter. You have no coal. The machine brings you some coal. All the machine asks is you vote for it. Now, he said, government doesn't do any of these services. We do. And it's a great little book. But it also told you how absolutely, totally corrupt the system was. Well, there were a number of people who just couldn't stand the corruption. One of the most famous was Samuel Tilden, who almost became president and who really went after Tammany Hall and indicted Boss Tweed, who was the head of Tammany, on 120 counts of fraud. Because of his popularity taking down Tweed, Tilton was elected governor of New York, almost became president of the United States. The Village Independent Democrats was one of the best-known reform Democrat clubs based in Greenwich Village, which helped topple Carmine DeSapio and Tammany Hall. And that was back in 1961. Remember, Tilton's 1871. The Village Democrats is 1961. Meanwhile, in the middle of the country, a brilliant leader named Paul Douglas, who ultimately became a U.S. senator, was determined to reform the system. He ran for the Chicago City Council as an independent Democrat in 1939. He won, and he served as alderman until 1942, when he sought the Democratic nomination for the U.S. Senate. He was a registered independent, this is great, who felt that the Democratic Party was too corrupt and the Republican Party was too reactionary, and wrote a book in 1932, called The Coming of a New Party. Douglas sought the Republican endorsement for mayor in 33, but didn't get it. In 1939, Douglas and a group of independents looked to challenge Democrat Joseph Alderman for alderman. Douglas became their candidate, and with the endorsement of the Democratic mayor, Ed Kelly, he won. After winning in 1939, Douglas found himself in the minority and often lost 49-1 to 1 on the city council on reforms for the public school system, and lowering public transportation fees. But he never backed off. He ultimately won a U.S. Senate seat and was actually instrumental in the election of Harry Truman in 1948. Meanwhile, not very far from Chicago and Minneapolis, Minnesota, and a story people don't really remember very well. Hubert Humphrey ran for mayor of Minneapolis, Had ran a pharmacy, His poorly funded campaign got 47% of the vote. In fact, when they got to the runoff, he only got 6,000 out of 115,000 votes. By 1944, he was a key figure in bringing together what had been a reform rural party called the Farmer Labor Party and the Democratic Party, which had been the Urban Party. And they created what still exists today, the Minnesota Democratic Farmer Labor Party. And here's where it gets interesting communists tried to take over the party, genuine communist, As an anti-communist, Hubert Humphrey pulled together a group and managed to throw them out. In 1945, he ran again and won with 60% of the vote. And by the way, in his campaign, one of the people who ran commercials for him was a Hollywood star named Ronald Reagan. And it's because Humphrey was clearly the anti-communist, and Reagan was very deeply committed to defeating communism. So Humphrey became a real reformer, went through taking out corruption after corruption after corruption, and really did a great job. In fact, even though the city was growing dramatically, murders and aggravated assaults declined during his last two years as mayor. And so Humphrey really was a remarkable reform leader. And he went on, of course, to become both the U.S. senator and then the vice president of the United States and came very close to becoming president. So I gave you these stories because we do have a history in America of taking on corruption. We do have a history of taking on violence. We do have a history of reforming. And I think it's important. I cannot tell you when I wake up on a Monday and I see that 100 of my fellow Americans have been shot in Chicago, that a four-month-old is in the hospital trying to recover, that the schools are teaching nothing, that the local jobs are destroyed, that the elements of violence, crime, and drugs dominate. This is not what America should be. And so I just wanted to share with you, yes, we have a history of cleaning things up, we have a history of courage, and we have a history of taking places that look hopeless, and because we find courageous patriots, we turn it around. And I hope that you will take this, think about it, And the next time you see something you can't stand, go fix it. Don't just complain about it and be passive. And I hope this is helpful as a starting point towards creating a reform movement once again in the U.S. Thank you for listening. You can learn more about Where Are the Big City Reformers on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newtsworld is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan. And our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World.
2: Zumo Zumo Play.